0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. A number of visitors here with us today. Uh, Some of you are visiting from Colonial Baptist Church, a sister church in the area, because a goose hit a transformer. And you have no power, so your services got canceled. Thank you for being here with us today. We appreciate it. So, For your sake, uh, primarily, though, for any other visitors who are here with us, I'll try to make sure that this is clear for you also, but uh, we've been working through the Gospel of Mark now for about the past three years. And uh, in God's providence, and I do mean it this way, there was no planning on our part to do this, we have ended up here in the crucifixion section right before Easter. We'll be actually on resurrection Here in Mark 16 on Easter Sunday. So, we have taken some time to begin working through, or take some time just to work through the crucifixion and and torture of Jesus here in a very detailed way, just to make sure that we understand it well. We started that last week. This is part two. We have one part left to go. So, even though you won't be here with us next week, thank you uh, for at least being here for the middle. We're going to read verses 16 to 41, and we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please look at verse 16. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land, whole land, until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Siloam. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Spirit be with us this morning and apply these words to our hearts. Last Sunday, we've begun this process, we began this process of trying to see this section with new eyes, to to really understand it, to, to allow Mark to teach us what it is he wants us to see, and I pray that that will be true again today. We do not want to sensationalize the brutality of what happened to you, Lord, but nor do we want to downplay it. You suffered in our place, as we sang earlier. It is by your stripes that we have been healed. And it serves us well to recognize and understand those stripes, to remember that they should have been ours, and to know what the real cost of sin is. And so as we work through this passage over these three Sundays, I pray that the weight of what you had to go through to pay for our sins will be so heavy upon our hearts that we will not be able to do anything but Follow you, take up our own crosses and follow you to the very end. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, my dad uh, told you in the past, he was a Marine. When he was in the Marine Corps, he served two tours of duty in Vietnam, uh, two one year tours of duty in Vietnam during the war. And uh, the first time he was there, he was put in charge of all of the laundry units along the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. And so his task was to go from station to station, camp to camp, and make sure everything was running correctly. And, and, And being so close to the DMZ, he had a number of very interesting experiences and stories. And one example that I thought about this week was of a picture my dad took when he was there in Vietnam that he did not let me see until I was a little bit older. Um, The way the Marines had set this up was that at each individual camp or station, they had a Marine or a couple Marines who were in charge of the laundry unit there, but they didn't do most of the manual labor. They tended to hire that out to local Vietnamese men and women who would come in and do the work. And, you know, why these men and women came and worked for the Marines was probably unique to each person. Some came in as spies. There were a number of times my dad talked about where he would be at a particular base uh, spending the night, and uh, they would be attacked by the Viet Cong, mortar shells coming in, small arms fire, et cetera. The Marines would return fire. They knew they had killed a few of them. They didn't know. So the next morning, they'd go out and try to see what exactly had happened, what had been accomplished, and when they got there, they would find people dead who had worked at the base the same day. They worked there in the day, and then that night went and joined the the Viet Cong to attack the base. They were using their knowledge to try to to help them as they attacked. But there were other people who were supportive of what the U.S. was doing in the war, and for them, for these Vietnamese people, they they didn't want the North Vietnamese to win. They didn't want uh, Russia through the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, to come in and take over, and so they were helping the Marines in any way they could, and working in the laundry unit was... Kind of an easy way to help. It was one of these guys that my dad took a picture of. He was a young man. He was probably in his early 20s, maybe late teens, I'd guess. I'm not exactly sure. He was supportive of what the U.S. was doing. Because of that, the Viet Cong captured him and killed him. But they didn't just kill him. They, they, they weren't just angry about what he was doing. They wanted to send a message to all of the other Vietnamese men and women who were working at the camp. So they took his body and they hung, and this is what the picture was of, they hung a warning sign around his neck, which was written in Vietnamese, but basically said, this is what's going to happen to you if you help the Marines. And then they creatively positioned him on the barbed wire outside of the, of the road leading in. And, of course, the reason why they did this was obvious to all of us is so that the next morning, as all those Vietnamese men and women are making their way into the base, as they get up close, and this is talking early before it's sun up, and everybody could see what was going on, they'd see this guy on the barbed wire, sign around his neck, this is what's going to happen to you. Um, it was effective. It was a very effective means of, of, of <laughs> PR, of propaganda, And it was something that the Marines had to fight against, Um, brutal but effective. The reality is, is that the Romans used crucifixion in much the same way and for much the same purpose. You see, for the Romans, crucifixion served two main purposes. First, it was to punish a criminal and I'll put criminal in quotes because they weren't always criminals, it was to punish an individual in such a way that it would extend the suffering that this person would experience as they died. Understand, and I'll go into this in a little more detail in a few minutes, that the, 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 the mechanism of death in crucifixion was not injury. It was asphyxiation due to muscle fatigue. And so some victims could last days on a cross, two, three, I think four days is the largest I read about as people have written about this in antiquity. Um, That's one reason they do it. But the second and far more important reason that the Romans used crucifixion was because it served as a way to get public exposure of what happens to you if you violate what Rome wants. It was very effective at this. They generally would crucify people near city walls or on main roadways and would put their, their crime up above them so as you walk by, you could see this person was a traitor to Rome, this person did this, this person did that, and you get to see their cries, you get to hear their agony, and uh, that's got a real propaganda effect on a conquered people because if you're a conquered, uh, an individual of a conquered nation and you're seeing this in front of you daily, weekly, whatever, that gets into your head. And it was an effective way of keeping their conquered peoples under control. Uh, They used it brilliantly. I I wrote here in my notes that for the Romans, uh, it was more than just execution. It was art and science. They had perfected how to kill you in the most brutal way possible, and they used it to control the people in these territories. As I've already mentioned, today is part two of a three-part study on the torture and execution of Jesus. Last week, we looked at various events from right after his verdict, his guilty verdict, uh, all the way right up until he's getting ready to walk out the door to Golgotha. This included his scourging, which was in and of itself brutal. Scourging was designed to rip ribbons of flesh off of an individual. It was uh, just a terrible, terrible form of torture, and we don't know exactly how Jesus was scourged, how severe his scourging was. But I'm telling you, folks, even if it was mild, it it was still terrible. I don't even know how to really call a mild scourging, so that's why I'm putting it in quotes. It was still terrible. And after the scourging, uh, you read it here in Mark 15, Jesus goes through a mock coronation ceremony where he is anointed with spit, and he is crowned with thorns, and he was about to be enthroned on a cross. And that's where we left off last time. And so today we're going to just pick up right where we left off now, here in verse 21, and we're just going to keep working through this text. Mark tells us here in verse 21 that as they come out of the governor's palace—this is where everything had occurred, the scourging and the coronation—as they come out of the governor's palace, they compel a man who is just passing by here to carry Jesus's cross. Now, I'm going to stop and ask a number of questions and try to answer them along the way. Today is going to be a little heavier on the mechanics and next week more on the significance, but but stick with me if you will, please. Uh, what is going on here as they're coming out of the palace? Well, you've probably seen pictures of people in you know modern times carrying a cross like down the side of a road. I know I've seen that as I've driven around sometimes. Someone's got a big T-shaped cross over their shoulder and they're walking along with it. And that's because when we read this story here, this little comment about Jesus carrying his cross, most of us picture what has been shown to us by, for example, like painters in the past. You know, the ones who always paint effeminate Jesus, and he's always white and. It makes no sense. But regardless, we, we've seen these images in our Sunday school books. We've, we've seen them in other things so much that we've just kind of come to assume or not even question that this is really what it was. In fact, I showed you pictures last week from uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. And it was funny. Again, as, as much as he was trying to be historically accurate, he even makes the same mistake and shows Jesus carrying a full cross. But, but the problem is, it's not accurate. In the Roman system, all that a criminal would be required to carry or be asked to carry normally would be the cross beam, which is called the patibulum. Here's my own little simple illustration of the two common Roman crosses that were used at this time. And I will just say it up front because some of you have heard one thing, some of you have heard another. We have no idea. I don't care who you talk to or what you read. We have no idea which one Jesus is crucified on. The one that is on, I believe, your left, looks like a capital T, was called the high towel. And the one that is on the other side was called the low Tau. Tau is the Greek letter T, and it looks just like the English T, so you've got a capital T and a lowercase t. And each cross is made up of two beams. There is a vertical beam that was called the stipes that was normally left planted in the ground, at least for permanent execution sites. If they're just like improvising on the way, they might have to put one up somewhere. But at a place like Jerusalem where they're going to kill... No doubt, lots of people. Generally, the stipes was just planted in the ground, just a pole sticking up, and all that the criminal would have to carry is this detachable crossbeam called the patibulum. This is what he would be doing and what would be then attached to the stipes. And so what Jesus is supposed to carry here is not the entire cross, but the the patibulum, the crossbeam. However, as you can see here in the text, he can't do it. He's either too weak or too slow, probably from the scourging, from blood loss, who knows? He, he, he just can't carry this patibulum, and so the guards get somebody else involved. Now, who is this guy? Simon. And the honest answer, again, despite anything you may have heard, is we have no idea. We have no idea who he is. All that Mark tells us is that he's from Cyrene, which is in northern Africa. But even as I say that, Sometimes movies depict him as a black man. We we don't even know that. He could have been a Jew living in in northern Africa. So we have no idea who he is. Uh, All that Mark tells us, he's from Cyrene. And he also tells us he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And it's that weird little interest in his children that may be our best clue that perhaps, just perhaps, Mark's original readers knew which Simon he was referring to. Otherwise, why specify this? Some have wondered if he is the Simon, also known as Niger, who is a key figure in the church of Antioch. We don't know. Some have wondered if the Rufus mentioned by Paul in Romans 16, 13 is the same Rufus mentioned here. Again, we just don't know. Regardless of all of that, Simon doesn't have a choice in the matter. He's forced now to carry the patabulum for Jesus to the place called Golgotha. Golgotha, as you see here in the text, is an Aramaic word that simply means place of a skull. You say, why was it called that? Because you've seen pictures, no doubt, from Jerusalem or from uh, Israel today that might cause you to think a certain thing. But I'll give you three reasons why it may have been called this. One, it's because maybe it looked like a skull. Two, it could be because a skull of some notoriety was found there. Or three, because it's just an execution site. And you say, well, where is it? I don't know. You can go Google this today if you want and look it up. We don't know where it is. There are multiple sites that are identified possibly as being Golgotha. And some people are like, oh, well, there's this one site that looks a lot like a rock. And Bruce Clark and I were talking about this before the service. Tell me, 2,000 years have passed. You think that that mountain hasn't changed at all in 2,000 years? Everything else in Jerusalem that was there at the time of Jesus is 20 feet under the ground. And yet this one mountain is unchanged for 2,000 years? I doubt it. We have no idea none at all where Golgotha is. All we know, it would probably be near the city by roadway so that people could see it and see Jesus being crucified. Outside of that, I can't help us. So Mark writes, as they, the soldiers, get ready to begin, they offer him a drink, wine mixed with myrrh. This is a drink that has a mild narcotic effect that would numb somewhat the pain of being attached to the cross. And you think, well, that's nice of them. Has anything yet in the Roman experience made you think they want to be nice to Jesus? This, this is not a kindness they're offering him. It, it was a way of blunting the pain, but only so that the individual could suffer longer in the long run. Because if they got too tired out, too weakened by the process of just being attached to the cross, it might cause them to die faster. And so it was generally something that could be offered. It didn't have to be offered, but it could be offered to extend the suffering. Jesus refuses, and so the crucifixion begins. And it's interesting to me, like last week, that Mark doesn't record any of the details of the crucifixion itself, none. He just says (laughs) three words, they crucified him. But like last week, as we talked about scourging, the reason for this lack of detail would be obvious to anyone at the time, because like scourging, Mark's original readers, they don't need a lesson in what crucifixion is. They get it. They've seen it. They've walked by it. They've looked up at a person who is suffering on the cross. They understand it thoroughly. And so for Mark's original readers, simply saying they crucified him is sufficient However, for us, all we have is what Hollywood and and Sunday school books have shown us over the years. And so I want to try to help us a little bit this morning by explaining crucifixion in some detail. Once you arrived at the crucifixion site, a number of things would have occurred. And I don't know in what order. I'll just put them in an order that seems logical to me. First, you would be stripped naked. You know, it's interesting that in all of the recreations of Jesus's crucifixion. No one ever covers this point. And they do it because then the movie would be like rated NC-17. And, but, but in reality, it would almost be good to do it because one of the goals of crucifixion is to expose the, the criminal to bring shame, public shame. Back in those days, nakedness was actually shameful. And so for having a person up there exposed naked to the world, they would be adding insult to injury. Their personal effects, whatever they were wearing when they got to the execution site would be stripped off of them and divided up by the guards via whatever means the guards decide. Next, the titleist or the criminal record would have been attached to either the patibulum or the stipes. And I chose this little illustration, you'll see a number of them, because you can see just a, a rendering of what it could have looked like, just a, a wooden board with the criminal offense written on it, in Jesus' case, the King of the Jews. And whether you're using the high tower or the low tower would be attached above their head. And so that way everybody who passes by can see exactly what is uh, what happened. Next, the guards would probably decide whether or not to use something called a sedile. Now, I've circled it here for you. A sedile is a little platform. You've seen this probably on other pictures of the cross. It could be placed either high, so near the the offender's buttocks, or down low by their feet. And you think, well, that's nice. It gives them something to rest on. Actually, it was not designed to be nice at all. One, the construction of it generally had some kind of a point or a knob or something that would make resting on this thing uncomfortable. But two, by using a sedile, you get to extend the suffering of the person. Because if they don't have the sedile, all they're going to be able to pull up and down on, and I'll explain why they do that in a moment, is just the nails. So if you don't have a sedile, it's going to be harder. You're probably going to die faster. If you have a sedile, either to rest on, on, again, on your butt, or to push against with your feet, you can go longer because you have a little bit of support. But going longer on a cross is clearly... Not a good thing. We have no idea if Jesus had a sedile or not. Once these tasks are done, victims has been stripped, uh, titles is attached, the sedile is attached, it's now time to attach the victim. It is true that some victims were not nailed to a cross, some were tied, some were tied and nailed. You could do both. You have to keep the person's arms up and their legs as well. But But nailing was another way, maybe. Uh, even the preferred way, and Roman crucifixion spikes were kind of like railroad spikes today, but thinner. They're long, these are crucifixion spikes. These could be anywhere from, the short ones would be like four to five inches, the longer ones would be eight to ten maybe. Thin iron spikes driven into the hands and feet. And the Bible tells us that that's exactly what happened with Jesus. His hands were pierced, and so many people picture the nails being placed directly into the palm. This is how, again, most of our Sunday school literature as kids taught us. But but this is actually not accurate. I mean, just think about this. If you're hanging from a nail that is in your palm, you're going to rip that thing out just by your own body weight. So so this is a, a, a Hollywood version of of what was done there. In reality, in order to get enough hold, they normally had to nail a little further back into the wrist through the bones and tendons that are here. This would still be considered the hand, and by going through here, they could get enough leverage to to hold on, and I mean, this would be, it would be painful anywhere, (laughs) but it would be extremely painful to be nailed through your wrist, and this would become the primary pivot point on which you would be pulling yourself as crucifixion really got underway. Next, the feet would then be attached to the stipes. And there was a couple of ways to do this, depending on whether or not a sedile was used. If it is being used, you could go down a little lower on the foot, kind of through the mid-foot area, because on this one, at least you're not pulling down, you're pushing down, and so there's some support. And if you've got the sedile to kind of rest on, you're not in danger of having the victim come off of the cross. However, without a sedile, you probably had to go up a little higher. And one of the, and this is interesting, this is the only, the only example that I'm aware of that I could find from archaeology where you can actually see what this was. They found a, um, a heel bone in an ossuary in Jerusalem, I think after the Six-Day Wars. They were doing some building, some excavation. Uh, generally nails would be pulled out of a victim who had been crucified and they wouldn't be buried with this person. But in this case here, you can see right here at the end, the, the nail hit something. It hit another nail that was in the wood. It hit a knot. It hit something and it it hooked. It bent. And so apparently they left it in. This is coming through the ankle down through the heel bone. So probably a person who was crucified without sedile. Otherwise, it could be a little lower. Um, this is, this is, is painful. And once the person now is fully attached, really the waiting game begins. So, so this is where crucifixion was, was bad. You know, if you think about it for a moment, if the person hasn't been tortured in advance, by the time they get actually attached to the cross, they're not actually that terribly injured. Yeah, they've got a hole here and a hole here and through the foot. I get that that would be terrible. I'm not downplaying that. But if they haven't had other injuries inflicted to them, the rest of them is now pretty much okay. And so they're now hanging from this position, which is why I said to you at the beginning that crucified people don't die from injury. They die from suffocation. Because once you're down into this position here, you cannot breathe. If you are in the down position in crucifixion, it is unable for you to breathe because there's too much pressure being placed on your diaphragm and your rib cage in order to allow the lungs to inhale and exhale properly. So, the only way that you can breathe is by pulling yourself and pushing yourself up to the up position. So, now that you can take a breath, you know, now you can breathe, but the pain on your wrists and feet would be so horrible that you couldn't sustain yourself in that position, which is why you would go back down into the down position. Now you can't breathe again. Up, pain, down, suffocation. Up, pain, down, suffocation. And you can go like this for as long as either A, you can sustain it. So if you're a strong individual, you're not badly injured apart from the nails, uh, sometimes the Romans would even feed and give drink water to the, to the individual to sustain their strength, you could go for days. As long as your body could sustain it. As long as you didn't uh, experience so much muscle fatigue that you finally can't pull yourself up again. Or what also apparently happened quite often is that sometimes in going down, you pop a, 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 something out of joint, and all of a sudden you can't pull up on an arm. And if you can't pull up for whatever reason you suffocate, so you could either go for as long as you could sustain it, or B, until the soldiers got tired. Because one thing they could always do, and you even see this in the other gospel examples, is they can go over and break the legs of the individual. A hammer blow, whatever, break the legs, break the ankle bones, and now they can't push up, you can't push up, you suffocate. It's really that simple. It's, if you can push up, you live. If you can't, you die. And I use the word, uh, excruciating, last time. Uh, I think I've used it today as well. I used it purposely because the English word excruciating comes from the Latin word for crucifixion. E-X-C-R-U-C, excruci, C-R-U-C, crucifixion. There's a reason that even to this day, 2,000 years later, when we use what we would consider probably a very strong word to describe pain, oh, that was excruciating. We use a word based out of crucifixion, and now you understand why. Mark, while he doesn't give us a detailed explanation of the crucifixion, everything that he does record fits perfectly into what we know about Roman crucifixion in general. When he gets to the to the site, they take his clothes and they cast lots for them. That means they roll dice. It's like a game of chance to see who would get what. So they take that and the soldiers split it up. Uh, they nail him to the cross, which in his condition, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, if someone is is not injured, they could you know last a long time, but Jesus is injured. He's been scourged just before this. And so Imagine him having to pull up and down on the cross with his back lacerated like it was Gibson. Gibson in his movie pictured it like this. And I don't know if his scourging was this severe. I just don't know. But just imagine if his back is even half of this and having to pull up and down. It would have been, it would have been horrific. Mark inserts a timestamp for us at this point. It's the third hour when they crucify him. That means it's 9 a.m. our time. It's the morning, so it's early. And Mark tells us then what the title is said. His charge was that he was the king of the Jews. He also tells us that Jesus isn't alone on Golgotha. He is. Uh, crucify between two criminals. So there he is in the middle, one on his right, one on his left. And now the public fun begins. Because remember, one of the goals of crucifixion, one of the benefits from the Romans' perspective is that you're put out for everyone to see near the city wall, near the road, so the people can come by, see, they can jeer, they can make fun, and sure enough, that's what happens. Remember, um... Excuse me, verse 29 here, you see that people are doing it. They're joining in on the spectacle. And Mark says that those who passed by him at this point begin to deride him. And I really wish our translators had had picked a better word for deride here. Because you want to know what the, the Greek word for deride here is? It's a word you'll already recognize. It's the word blasphemo. What English word do we get from blasphemo? Blasphemy. What charge? did the priests charge Jesus with that night in the trial, the first phase? Blasphemy. So they charge him with that because they say, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And he says, I am. Blasphemy, we don't believe him. And now who are the ones blaspheming? It's the priests, it's the people passing by. They start to wag their heads, Mark writes, and say, aha, these are Cultural expressions of contempt. They cry out to him, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. The chief priests, the scribes, they all join in on the fun. Saved others. Can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe, which I would just point out to you. If you're in this state of blasphemy, even if you saw, you wouldn't believe and then the robbers who are crucified with him begin to join in on the blasphemy too. Now I want us to stop here in the text for today, but I want to consider something actually that is previous to this point in Mark. I want to bring it back now. Something that Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. I don't know how many months ago it was since we were in Mark chapter 8, but but he said it then, and, and Chris was actually the one who walked us through it at the time, but I want to kind of bring it back to our attention just in light of the, the mechanics of what you learn today, okay? It's Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 37. Here's what Jesus said, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And let's just think through this just one little piece at a time. Jesus tells the crowds, if you want to follow me, you've got to do three things. One, you've got to deny yourself. Which if I could just pause and just make a point on that one, that's hard for all of us. That wasn't just hard for them. That's We are naturally lovers of ourself. We are selfish and proud to the core. So so just to deny ourselves is hard enough, but then he adds to that, now you have to take up your own cross, to be specific, your patibulum, and now you have to follow him, which indicates that you're going to follow him with his patibulum, right? You're going to walk with me to death. And I want you to hear those requirements now with new ears this morning. I mean, knowing what you now know about crucifixion, about how this process worked, can you now see why Jesus didn't do a very good job of attracting big crowds and keeping them? I mean, you don't, you don't keep big crowds in that day by saying, hey, if you want to be on my team, you've got to be crucified, because everyone around there would have recognized exactly what that meant and be like, I'm okay. Is there another team? Because I'd rather be on that one instead. Can, can you also see now why I said last Sunday in, in the introduction of that message why Mark's original readers would have been weirded out by seeing us wear crosses? Like, Why would you wear such a thing? What? I'm not saying that it's wrong for you. I'm, I'm just trying to help you think. If they were here and they walked in, they, ladies, you have an, a cross necklace on, they saw that. Can you imagine their response? It would have been like dumbfounded. Why would you wear like Something like that. The cross was a a horrible thing. It was was something to be avoided, not not something to be willingly embraced. And yet, Jesus calls for that very thing. A willing embrace of of death, of a horrible death. That, it it sounds so morbid. It sounds so extreme. And yet, there's a paradox here. Because avoiding that path, the path of willingly embracing death on behalf of Jesus... It actually leads to death. And embracing then that path actually leads to life, because, because at the end of the day, folks, what we're all doing here is we're making a value, determination. What is more valuable to me? These two diametrically opposed things here that Jesus seems to be indicating: the world or my soul. What would I rather have? This world or my soul? You see here, verse 36, you can get the entire world and lose your own soul. Which would seem then to indicate the opposite. You can also get your, lose this whole world and gain your soul. John, making a very similar statement in 1 John chapter 2, defines the world for us, which he says you cannot love that and the Father. It's one or the other. But he defines the world for us because it's kind of a nebulous concept that it's the lust of the flesh, it's the lust of the eyes, it's the pride of life. Or as I like to say it, it's pleasure, possession, pride. You think about our world today, the things it lives for, the things it values. It values pleasure, it values possessions, it values pride. You can enjoy all the pleasures and all the possessions and all the pride of this world and forfeit your soul, or the opposite. It's a value question, and everyone has to answer it. And and I don't have a lot of time left, but I'm going to use an illustration. It's not mine. It's Francis Chan's originally But it's so good, I thought I would uh, try to take it just to make this make sense for you. He likes to use this rope illustration, okay, where he takes this long rope, and we're going to pretend, even though it ends under Nathaniel's chair over there, we're going to pretend that it just goes on into eternity, and he likens this to our life. So just like our life has a beginning and then continues on into eternity, this rope has a beginning and continues on into pretend eternity. And I've got this little end here taped in red to represent our life on earth. It's all you've got these few years. And eventually a point comes where you'll die and you've got all of that. And the question that Jesus is posing to us here that John is posing to us as well is what do you want to live for? You want to spend all your time living for this and pay no attention to that? Do you want to invest all your time here and pay no attention to that? Or would it be better to give this up in order to gain all of this? See, this is the question that Jesus is posing to us. And if you ask people just, you know, around you, your neighbors, your coworkers, etc., what are you living for? What are you valuing? It's this. It's all they can see. But the reality is even if you ask Christians, unfortunately, this is much of all they can see as well. They'll spend all their time desiring things for here. They'll spend all their time wanting to acquire things here. They'll spend all their time trying to get pleasures and possessions and pride here. They'll work all of these years so they can enjoy this little spot right here. And they give no time or thought to that. Jesus' statement makes a lot more sense when you see it like this. You want to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Or you want to lose your, this world and gain your soul? It was Jim Elliott who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And this is true today as it was the day he said it. What seemingly would be the epitome of life to so many people is actually death. Oh, we get to enjoy pleasures and possessions and It's life. You're living the life. You're digging your grave. And what would seem like the epitome of death to this world is actually life. And I fear that for most of us, many of us maybe, I shouldn't say, myself, I'll fear it for me. We're too busy carrying our golf bags and our laptops and our Target bags to even think about what it means to carry our crosses. So if you would examine what you carry most often, or I'll say it this way because I think this is also true, if you would at least examine what you desire to carry most often, what would your choices say about you that you are trying to gain? What would your time and your money say about you that you are trying to gain? The world or your soul? Let's pray. Jesus, I... I come and I confess my own heart's desire because the reality is it's so easy to live for that little little piece of red. It's, it's here and I can see it and I can touch it and feel it. I know it and it takes faith to see the other. But the reality is it takes faith for everyone. They either have to believe that that doesn't matter or they have to believe that it does. One way or the other, we all make a value decision here. And you have laid out the course for us in very clear terms. The choice is we can gain this world and lose our souls, or we can gain our souls and lose this world. You clearly chose the latter. You gave up this world. You could have enjoyed all kinds of pleasures, all kinds of possessions, all kinds of pride. You could have, you could have shown the world who you really were, and they would have fallen to their knees to worship you, but you chose the other. And yet here we are claiming to be your followers and your disciples, and for us that decision isn't so easy. And so I pray, Lord, that you will use this time in this text studying the crucifixion to open our eyes to what we're living for. Help us to really examine ourselves. What do our choices say? So that as we think next week even about the significance now of what's going on in this moment, You will put all of this together to call us to live for you, to give our lives for you in whatever ways you put before us, willingly, gladly, for the sake of Jesus. We ask in his name, amen.